Thanks to our friends over at HelloFresh for supporting Industry Focus. Receive $30 off your first week of deliveries when you go to HelloFresh.com slash MF30 and use the offer code MF30. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, May 14th, and we're kicking off our international theme week by talking about, well, international in financials. Folks, Industry Focus is a U.S.-based podcast talking about the U.S. stock market. So we spend most of our time talking about, well, domestic companies. But there's a whole world of stocks out there, and no portfolio is truly diversified without international exposure. So this week, we decided to change things up by focusing on international stories. Every host is interpreting this a little bit differently. The way we've chosen to interpret this on Financial Show for the inaugural show of this theme week is to talk about U.S. stocks with significant international exposure. Other folks will be talking about stocks that are actually or companies that are actually based in foreign countries. And you know, we like to take sort of that motley approach to uh, how we interpret the theme week. So we're going to start off with a general discussion on international investing, just kind of introducing the topic, and then we'll talk about some of those specific companies after the break. So first off, then. Let's talk about international investing and, well, the different ways you can invest. Sure. Um, I mean, the most obvious way is to just buy a stock that is a company that is outside of the U.S. But that's not for everybody. We'll get into the reasons in a minute. Uh, In addition to that, if you kind of just want to set it on autopilot, you can use an ETF or mutual fund that invests in foreign companies. Um, And like Michael said, the other way is to invest in U.S. stocks or stocks with substantial operations in the U.S., but that also have a lot of foreign exposure as well. Yeah. And one of the key things to think about when uh, considering how to invest your portfolio, sort of the asset allocation piece of this, like how much do you put in international stocks, is also thinking about, well, the different risk types here, right? So, uh, you know, a, a, a company based in London is very different from a company that's based in, uh, let's say, Sao Paulo. And so you have to kind of think about the different types of risk. And we'll get more into risk in a little bit. But one of the things when thinking about that asset allocation is also considering the different types of risk that you're taking on. Is it political risk? Is it geographic risk? Is it uh, the fact that you know companies are highly correlated with certain commodity prices? And, and so that's sort of a thing you have to think about, particularly with international stocks, but really in general about your portfolio. So sort of all of that being said, Matt, how do you tend to think about asset allocation to international companies or, let's say, international exposure in general in your portfolio? Um, it's hard to tell for sure. Just I, I like to keep it between 10 and 15% of my total portfolio international exposure. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, it's really difficult to get an exact percentage of each. I, for example, I own about 30 different stocks. It's really, it would be really tough to figure out the exact percentage of each one's revenue that comes from overseas and to constantly keep that between a 10 and 15% window. Having said that, that's kind of what I shoot for. Um, we'll go through a few in a second, but a lot of the stocks that I own in my own portfolio have substantial operations overseas. And generally, just I mean, doing the quick math in my head before this episode, I am within that 10 to 15% range. But that's a pretty good, good range to shoot for to kind of you know hedge against currency fluctuations, kind of just add a little element of diversification to your portfolio and things like that. Yeah, and and a lot of what 
I think matters in terms of thinking about this is your own circle of competence, right? So if you have, you know, traveled to a lot of countries, perhaps, you know, you've done business in, in other countries, you'll have a better understanding of sort of what the puts and takes are as you're thinking about how to allocate your portfolio there. As well, just consider your own risk appetite in general. So if you, you know, if you think about it for a minute, a, a really, let's say, an, an emerging economy, right? Um, you know, so you'll see this in like uh, parts of Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa. You know, though it's going to be a very volatile uh, area, probably. If you are okay with volatility, there's an op- there may be an opportunity there, depending on kind of what you know and how well you invest. But the flip side of that is that you may also see really enormous swings, and so that's just something that you have to kind of consult your own. Uh, risk tolerance and your own willingness to accept potential losses before really figuring out where and how and how much to invest internationally. Now, I've talked a lot about some of the sort of like drawbacks, and we'll get those through those a bit more formally in a minute. But let's turn to the advantages of international investing, and I think one of the key core ones is kind of the other side of that volatility, which is fast-growing, exciting investments. I mean, there are real opportunities. Um, with company with countries that are growing their GDP at five and seven and ten percent annually, you know, here in the U.S., it's a good year if we get to two. <laughs> and so you you really have to kind of consider um, what the opportunity might be for a well placed company in a fast growing uh, economy. Right. I mean, there have been periods in the past twenty years when you could have owned a China ETF for for a ten year period and you know quadrupled your money. So these are investments that can be growing faster. Even you know what we think of as kind of boring companies like telecoms in some of these developing nations can be growing at you know ten, fifteen percent a year. Right. So these are just opportunities that you don't have domestically just because of the maturity of our economy. Right. Um, one of the other things to consider is just in general diversification. I mean, so when you think about uh, the United States. Well, actually, when you think about your portfolio in general, you think about correlation, right? How much are you tied to particular trends or or particular commodity prices, as I kind of mentioned earlier? Well, one of the things that uh, a primarily domestic stock portfolio is highly correlated to is, well, U.S. economic performance. And to some extent, the rest of the world is too. But um, there are opportunities to kind of diversify your holdings to make sure that you kind of have these opportunities to... to benefit when other countries are prospering in ways that the United States isn't. And that's a really important thing to consider here. Yeah, it's, it's kind of the same same thought processes. Would you put all of your portfolio in bank stocks? We love bank stocks that we talk about them every Monday. <laughs> we sure but, do. <laughs> but we're not going to put all of our money in them. The same kind of concept applies here. We love America. We think American business is going to do great over the next you know, 50 or 100 years. But we it, that doesn't mean you want to put all of your money into America's economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if something like 2008 happens, a lot of the world did better than their, the, uh, a lot of the stock markets around the world rather did a lot better than ours did in 2008 because of you know what obviously what happened to the U.S. banking system. Another reason you don't want to be 100 percent in banks, <laughs> right? But it, my point is, then when it's a bad situation happens. Um, you don't want to be completely levered to that one country's economy. The mm-hmm. same thing is true for other countries as well. If there's, say, a UK-specific um, incident that happens, you don't want to be a hundred too levered to that market. Just it kind of balances out your your geographic risk. 
Yes. By investing in foreign companies. And I would say more broadly, when I think about stocks, I'm usually considering their geographic risk. If one company does all of its business in California or Virginia or South Carolina or wherever, that's to some extent a concern because a change in the regulatory environment in that one state can have a really outsized impact or, or a, a natural disaster or, or who knows. In the same way, being levered all to one country kind of Again, there's a bit more spread out of risk right? because we've got 50 states in the United States, but there's still some of that risk. Um, one of the other things to consider with uh, stocks and with um, international stocks, and it, it can be both an advantage or a disadvantage, kind of depending, is well, currency headwinds or tailwinds. So, um, U.S. based companies operate on the dollar when they have significant international. Um, Operations, depending on whether the dollar is weak or strong, that can be a benefit or a drawback to their kind of reported earnings. Now, it's not something that we really consider a lot in terms of looking at investments because there's, well, let's face it, if the underlying business is strong, then currency headwinds or tailwinds are just kind of a, a thing that you notice. But it's certainly something that you need to be aware of before considering investing in international stocks. Now, with that, let's turn to some of the drawbacks. And we've highlighted some of these already, but we'll just go through and talk about them a little bit more. First one, obviously, political risk. Yeah, um, not every country is as stable as as the U.S. Um, a lot of people think our political climate's kind of you know shaky. Go go to one of these emerging nations and just kind of see how how uncertain things are. Um, in emerging market, emerging markets, um, you know, Venezuela comes to mind as a real big example right now, mm-hmm. um, with the, the hyperinflation going on there. Um, things like that, um, changing politi- like if a political regime is overthrown, that could have a huge effect on investments in that country. Um, you know, hyperinflation is a big risk that uh, in a lot of these emerging nations that don't have currencies that are quite as stable as the U.S. dollar. Um, just in short, be aware that not every country is as developed as America. That's why they call some of these emerging markets. Right. And, uh, and of course, we've already talked about volatility, so I'll kind of skate by that one, but just wanted to sort of reemphasize it one more time that volatility is definitely a bigger concern with emerging markets in particular, in part because the expectation is if a company's been, or if a country has been growing its GDP at, I'm making this up, 7% annually, then well, if they report 5% annual growth for a year, that can really shake a lot of investor confidence. So you Now, that may not necessarily change your underlying thesis around the, com- uh, around the country and around the specific companies that you might be investing in in that country, but you just need to be aware that things are probably going to be more volatile because there's more expectation for growth built in, just like when you invest in growth stocks in general. Um, the other thing to point out here is that there's limited information available on many foreign companies. That basically, there are different regulatory uh, requirements country by country, and that can make a really big difference in terms of what story you learn about a company. And uh, Not every country has the SEC looking out for investors. Right. Um, not every company is requir- around the world is required to file a, you know, a, a 10Q every quarter. Uh, and just there, there's limited information available on companies, especially in the emerging markets. Which makes them kind of tough to research and value properly, um, especially for people listening who are, you know, look at some of the metrics or consider themselves value investors. It can be much more difficult to value companies from emerging markets, especially, um, and I mean, even developed countries around the world 
that don't have the same regulatory requirements that we do here. Right. And so with that, we're going to turn and talk about uh, five specific companies that are U.S.-based but have significant international exposure right after the break. This episode of Industry Focus is sponsored by HelloFresh. They're offering everyone in our audience $30 off your first week of deliveries when you go to HelloFresh.com MF30 and use the offer code MF30. So I had the opportunity recently to try a HelloFresh meal. Uh, it had been a long day. I was on dinner duty, and I just needed something quick and preferably healthy. I made their crispy chickpea tacos recipe, and it was fantastic. Quick, simple instructions. Everything was pre-measured in a labeled meal kit, so I knew which ingredients to do when. It was great for me because I didn't have to really plan dinner. I didn't have to spend a bunch of money on an unhealthy takeout. I didn't really have to worry about gathering ingredients. It was all there. It was also a great way for me to get outside my cooking comfort zone. Usually, I'm making pasta or marinated chicken or something like that. Chickpea tacos was just a very different thing. And, and, And I really loved that part because I got to be imaginative, with my meal, but without having had to do sort of all the pre-shopping and pre-planning and stuff that, you know, at 7 p.m. on a Tuesday just isn't really top of my mind. Um, Plus, I knew and you know that every box is made up of fresh, responsibly obtained ingredients from carefully selected farms and high-rated trusted sources. You know, it's good because they have two dietitians on staff who review every recipe to ensure it's nutritionally balanced. Again, not something I'm usually thinking too much about when it's 7 p.m. and I'm debating which pizza place to order from. So again, try it out. Get $30 off your first week of deliveries when you go to HelloFresh.com MF30 and use the offer code MF30. All right, so we've, we've talked a lot about international investing. Time to talk through... Uh, some companies with significant international exposure. First one, Matt, one of your favorites and one that uh, we joked before the episode, you uh, always look for an opportunity to bring up TD Bank. Well, let's just say it's a great bank stock. Even, I mean, ignore the international exposure. It's still a great bank stock. Um, TD, if you're not familiar, it's uh, Toronto Dominion Bank is the official name. If you live on the East Coast, you've probably seen a TD Bank branch, but they're not throughout the United States yet, which is one of the big reasons I like the stock. Um, TD Bank is one of the biggest banks in Canada. It's the sixth biggest bank in North America. Um, They're based in Canada, which kind of brings up, this is kind of out of the five stocks we're going to talk about, this is the only one that's not based in the U.S. So um, currency headwinds are kind of more of a factor here. Specifically, I get paid dividends in Canadian dollars from TD Bank. So as the Canadian dollar has weakened, it looks like my dividend is going down, but that's really not the case. But anyway, um, TD Bank has a lot of room to grow in the United States, has a very nice revenue division between Canada and the U.S. They have some growth catalysts. Like I said, they're only in pretty much the East Coast right now, and they have done a great job of growing both organically and through acquisitions. They recently acquired Target's credit card portfolio, just to name a couple uh, Scott Trade is the other one I was going to uh, bring up. And um, they just really have a, a long way for growth, a long avenue for growth for such a big bank. Yeah. No, I mean, there's there's a lot of reason to like TD Bank, and uh, it's the only one on our list that's actually not a U.S.-based company. Uh, let's turn to Aflac. Yeah, this is one that people in America especially are kind of usually surprised to find out is not 
predominantly an American company. Right. In fact, America is a small portion of Aflac's revenue. They're, they're big in Japan. Uh, Aflac is actually the number one health in, and cancer insurer in Japan. So this is they're a big, big company over there. Um, we know them for their accident insurance, short-term disability insurance, and things like that. Um, Aflac, great example of if you want exposure to another developed market, Japan in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aflac is a dividend aristocrat. They've paid dividends for over 30 years in a row. They have a very low payout ratio, really good business fundamentals, and like I said, really great developed market exposure. Yeah, and that's one of the things here to really highlight, I think, is that um, Japan really being kind of their big market, um, that sort of turns on its head the, the thing that we usually tend to see really across a lot of, not just financials, but a lot of sectors where U.S. is kind of the big market and a lot of others are, well, the second biggest or the third biggest. Um, yeah, just to name one other statistic I forgot to mention, uh, one in four Japanese households is an Aflac customer. Wow, talk about market uh, market share. It's pretty impressive. Um, so let's turn to Well Tower. Now, this is uh, ticker symbol, symbol W-E-L-L. Uh, folks who've been watching the company for a long time know that it used to be HCN, but they've changed it now to Well for Well Tower, I assume. Um, and this is a healthcare REIT that really is strongly diversified, both in the United States and outside of it. Yeah, they actually, um, if you've been following them for a while, they changed their name to Well Tower. Their official name was Healthcare REIT. Uh, you know, that's kind of it tells the story, but that's kind of a boring name. <laughs> right. Not a, not a, not the best headline, maybe. <laughs> no, uh, if you're not familiar with them, they they're a health, obviously a healthcare REIT, but they invest mainly in senior specific properties, senior housing, um, long term care, you know, assisted living, things like that. Um, and they operate primarily in the U.S., but they have big presence in Canada and the U.K. Um, just as of. This most recent quarter, they have about 150 Canadian properties and about 120 in the UK. So, pretty, you know, a pretty big chunk of their revenue comes from overseas. And like, they're susceptible to currency headwinds a little bit because of it, but that's actually helped them out at points in the past. And these are kind of their two big growth markets because the senior housing industry is not as evolved over there as it is here. So kind of the general theme so far is I like we like stocks whose foreign exposure is a really nice complement to their US exposure. You know, they can leverage their brand name over in foreign markets. Just kind of adds a new growth avenue where the market might be getting a little saturated here. Right now, for example, there's big oversupply worries in the senior housing market. Um not the case in some of these foreign markets that Welltower invests in. Right. Um yeah, and that's a, that's a good point. I mean, Matt and I are both I wouldn't call us really conservative investors, but I would say maybe we're not quite as high on the yield curve as a lot of other people. And so um, we definitely tend toward um, businesses with heavy U.S. presences, even if it's maybe not their majority, um, just because this is a large, rich, attractive market. So let's turn to another REIT. Actually, our, our next two are both REITs as well. Um, perhaps not surprisingly, because there's a lot of geographic dispersion in real estate. Um, public storage, or ticker symbol PSA. Now, this is a self-storage REIT. Um, and self-storage tends to be a really attractive business model, both because the relationships tend to be sticky. That is, once you've put your stuff in a storage container, you tend to kind of keep it there 
more or less indefinitely, and they're able to kind of you know do like very small increases in price every you know year or two to basically continue to sort of ramp up their net operating income. Um, and public storage has got um, about a ninety-two percent um, occupancy rate. Most self-storage companies can break even at like. Forty percent or less, so it's a pretty attractive business model. Plus, it's got a lot of uh, exposure in uh, non-U.S. markets. So, um, specifically, public storage only owns one self-storage facility outside the U.S. It's in England, <laughs> um, but they have a forty-nine percent interest in SureGuard Europe, which has two hundred and twenty-two self-storage facilities, and so they're able to kind of leverage that um, with uh, market share there in Europe. Any other thoughts on them, Matt? Yeah, um, this is kind of another issue. Like I was mentioning, Well Tower, some of the, the businesses aren't as evolved overseas yet. Um, in public storage case, self storage is a small, small business over in Europe still. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to say I read right before this episode there are about two thousand self storage facilities total across Europe. Uh, just to put that in perspective, public storage has more than that in the U.S. alone. Right. So it's still a very small market. So there's and public storage just recently got into the development side of the game they've generally grown through acquisitions and they're really ramping up their development program and that opens up a lot of possibilities overseas if if they start to really develop the SureGuard brand over there right yeah no it's it's definitely a a, a potentially attractive company i mean it's it's sort of the large it's kind of the behemoth in self storage, um, and so as a result, you know their growth tends to be a little bit slower um, compared to some of the smaller folks like Extra Space Storage. Um, you know they boosted revenue, you know, two percent year over year last quarter, and uh, funds from operations per share or FFO per share, which is kind of the typical REIT um, number, was about one point three percent growth year over year. So you know you do tend to get kind of some of that lower growth, but they could also be in a bit of a growth trough, which once they've kind of built some of this um, development into their pipeline and are kind of lapping through that, there might be some real opportunities for them. And again, there's a lot of optionality internationally, so that's a really good thing for them. Um, finally, let's talk about Prologis, or <clears throat> ticker symbol PLD. Now, this one's an industrials REIT, just uh, primarily logistics centers. Um, 70% of their net operating income is in the U.S., only 55% of their square footage is. Um, and they've got really heavy diversification across Europe, which is their next largest market, Canada, Mexico, Brazil, and more broad, and then uh, a lot of Southeast Asia. Um, and so the nice thing there is, sure, most of your investment in the company is based off kind of these large mature markets, but there is significant optionality in some of these other markets, which are commanding, you know, sort of much lower rents. But long term, as they continue to expand and demand increases, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, there are a lot of opportunities for that company to grow. Plus, the majority of their asset management and third-party transactions, uh, transaction fees, and promotes from out are, are from outside of the U.S. Fifty-two percent versus forty-eight percent. Not a huge majority. But that means that they are active in the disposition market there, and they are seeing opportunities, which hopefully they can then kind of leverage that deep knowledge into building their square footage footprint in these outside of the U.S. markets. Yeah, I always call Prologis the um, the e-commerce play that nobody's talking about. Um, they, uh, Amazon's their biggest tenant, not surprisingly. And the statistic that stands out to me the most about Prologis is that um, online or e-commerce sales requires three times the distribution center space of brick and mortar retailers. 
So as we gradually transition to more and more e-commerce, it's a very positive catalyst for Prologis long term. And like Michael said, they're only most of their revenue is still domestic, but that could very easily change going forward. They're they're in 19 countries right now, and some of them have the potential to become very big markets for, for the company. Right. Now, it's worth noting here, Prologis is currently in the process of acquiring DCT Industrial, which would uh, increase the percentage of their square footage that's in the United States. Um, but um, there's still plenty of optionality internationally. Um, and frankly, you look at core business metrics, um, you know, they boosted revenue 10% year over year last quarter. Uh, the core funds from operations are up 27%. Guidance for the year is for core op, uh, core FFO to get to nearly three dollars a share from two eighty one last year, and so there's a lot of reason to like the company, um, despite the fact that it's it's already pretty darn big, um, and that's one of the things that I like kind of about both Prologis and Welltower is that they're big, and really do have quite a bit of growth ramp potential, which means that you kind of get the stability of a large company, while also getting some of the um, potential benefits of a growth company. Um, again, you're never going to get the kind of growth that you'll get from some small cap tech stock, right? But um, hopefully, that optionality kind of gives them a nice growth ramp to to churn out you know significant growth and dividends long term for shareholders. Yeah, definitely. Um, these are <clears throat> these REITs tend to be low volatility, but can surprise you with how much growth they have over the long term. Uh, public storage, for example, has handily beaten the S&P over the past three decades. So, I mean, I think it's returned something like five times the S&P's return over 30 years. Um, and with much lower volatility, much uh, stable, of, much more stable of a business than some of these smaller companies that can produce comparable returns. Yeah, lest you think that because of our uh, our um, episode last week about dividend yield traps. Lest you think that that means we don't like dividend yielding stocks, uh, Matt and I, <laughs> Matt and I both love REITs, and we both love talking about REITs. Not all REITs. There are some ones that are really kind of terrible, but there are a uh, a lot of equity REITs that are really very attractive, and um, and we both tend to invest, or at least tend to look pretty hard at REITs when we're investing. So, folks, that's it for this week's financial show questions, comments, you can always reach us at industryfocus@fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!